0: Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is Ben Robertson, and I'm a campus minister over at the college uh, with RUF, Reform University Fellowship. And I know all, you know most of you. We've been here a while. Uh, it's wonderful uh, to be here with you, always as our church home and family, and um, to have the chance to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, this semester in RUF, we studied through the Book of Isaiah. Uh, we meet about 13 times a semester, so a large group was about eight hours uh, each week as we plowed through chapters 1 through 66 of Isaiah, but students hung in there, and it was great. No, we didn't do that. We, I did 12 or 13 passages, uh, and so today we're going to look at one from right in the middle of Isaiah, chapter 40. It's at a transition point in the book of Isaiah. Uh, the first 39 chapters, Isaiah has been warning the people of Judah that exile will come if they don't repent and return to God from their rebellion and now he is prophetically looking forward. Exile has come, and now the remnant is returning to Jerusalem, and he is giving them words of comfort after a tremendous period of suffering. And so here we look at Isaiah's words of comfort for God's people after the exile. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. that are with young. Let's stop there and pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your comfort that you give us. We thank you that though we wander far off, you draw near. And we pray now, draw near. We need you. We need your hope. We need your encouragement. We need your rebuke. Comfort us now by the power of your spirit. Amen. I'm obsessed with comfort, I think most of us are. A few years back, um, we got a new mattress. Uh, about what, seven years ago maybe? I probably did more research on what mattress to get than I did on my taxes this year. And I was really into it and two, two summers ago we moved across town into a, a bigger place that we're renting now and uh, Dawn's parents bought me a Lazy Boy. It's not a Lazy Boy brand, but it's like the same thing. I just love my recliner. I I put my feet back, and it feels like I'm floating. So uh, if you come over sometime, I'll let you sit in it. Um, You can read a book Um, like I like to do there. I'm all about it. And here is this command to speak comfort. It says, comfort, comfort, oh, my people. It's an imperative. It's a plural imperative, saying to God's people, comfort one another. But the idea of comfort in this passage is not uh, snuggling on the couch, watching Netflix, and drinking cocoa. It's one of alleviating severe suffering. Of speaking into someone's wounds and offering healing. And the comfort that God offers here is actually an uncomfortable comfort. If you truly comfort a person to begin with, that's an uncomfortable act. Because if I'm going into your suffering and we together are trying to alleviate that for one another, what are we having to do together? We're having to acknowledge that things aren't okay. That we don't have it together that there's a problem in our lives, and that in itself is uncomfortable. But even some of the solutions that God gives us here in chapter 40 are uncomfortable. Um, some psychologists are suggesting that we're too comfortable in our society, and they're even saying, uh, I was listening to one recently who was talking about, with, even with young children, with babies, he was saying, when you wrap them up in the crib, don't just use a soft cloth, like maybe wrap them in burlap, real suggestion, Put little uncomfortable things around so that the child learns that life is uncomfortable and learns to be comfortable in the midst of things that are uncomfortable. Uh, there's a great uh, TED talk about letting your kids play with fire and knives in a supervised way. A few nicks and cuts and burns aren't going to kill them, typically. Um, so let them go. Give them uncomfortable comfort. Now those are probably extreme. We didn't wrap our kids in burlap yet. Um, but. But God here offers us things to comfort us that you and I, if we are honest, find very, very uncomfortable. There's a lot in this passage. We're going to look at three. First thing that we're uncomfortable with is crying out. He says, Cry aloud. Cry aloud to my people. Tell them that their sin is pardoned, that the suffering is over. Call out. And elsewhere, he calls them heralds of good news. This idea of proclaiming from the mountaintop the good news of God. And if you and I are honest, we are very uncomfortable doing that. Uh, There are certain factors in our culture today that may make it more difficult even than it was for the people of Judah. Where you may realize that in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in society in general, it's kind of awkward to really wave the Christian flag. There's not a real Christian flag, but to metaphorically wave our flag and say, I'm a Christian, and here, I'm going to talk to you about that now. It's a relationship killer, right? It's uncomfortable. And then at the same time, we as Christians know that that's kind of what we're supposed to be about at some level, and so we feel incredibly guilty about it, so it makes us feel even more uncomfortable. Um, a pastor in Nashville, his named Scott Rowley, so we may have heard of him. He's a musician. He did a, recorded some songs together with Michael Card. If you know who that is, then you definitely have the... The Access Pass to the Christian Ghetto, the Insiders Club, if you listen to Michael Card. But Scott Rowley was talking about a story of a guy in his church who was feeling so guilty about not sharing his faith. And they talked for a while about it and talked through it. And then a, a few weeks later, some people came to Scott and they said, what has gotten into this guy? Like, he keeps talking to people. He's talking to us about the gospel. Like We're Christians. <laughs> and then he's, he's, he seems to be, like, really sharing his faith and, like, people are coming to faith. through through this guy like what's gotten into him and so Scott pulled him aside and he asked him said what's going on and he said you know once I realized that Jesus didn't love me more or less based on whether or not I evangelized I just couldn't wait to tell everyone he started sharing the gospel because he knew that it was about grace that he wasn't earning God's favor but talking about our faith is difficult and it's awkward and it can come with all kinds of misperceptions and limit friendships and cut things off and even may seem unloving in our society today to talk about it. And that might be where you are today. You may be here thinking this is, here they go, the Christians proselytizing, telling everyone else how to believe and how to think. But ultimately, sharing our faith ought to be an act of love that is driven by the greatest commandment to love God and to love others. I've read this to you a few years ago, but I want to read it again. It's a quote from Penn Jillette of Penn and Teller, entertainers in uh, Las Vegas. And Penn Jillette is a very outspoken atheist. He has a blog and he creates these videos and he talks about uh, being a, a public atheist quite a bit. But he told a story one day on one of his videos where he talked about a man who came to one of his performances. And the man came up to him afterwards and he, he said, hey, I know you're an atheist. But I really appreciate what you do you're really good with words I enjoyed what the craft of your act and your wit and your use of language and he said I know you're an atheist but I'm a Christian and he had one of those little Gideon New Testaments little green ones and uh he said I want you to have this and I, I hope that you'll read it and Penn Gillett is crying talking to the camera about this and he says this through tears I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize or evangelize to tell, tell them about the faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling me about it because it would make things socially awkward, or atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody? to not proselytize. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible, but not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there'd be a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. Now there are huge distinctions between talking to someone about Jesus and tackling them in front of a truck, right? If only it were that easy and simple. But it's so interesting to me to hear from the voice of an atheist saying, no, I understand why you would talk to me about this, and I kind of think you should. Um, Heralds of good news were called in verse 9. Go on up on a high mountain, herald of good news. Good news, which in the New Testament we call gospel, translation of that word. Good news that is not shared is a contradiction in terms. What do you do when you hear good news of any sort? You immediately want to tell it to someone else. Um, And put positively, the sharing of that good news becomes a moment of joy for you and for the one hearing it. It's as, as if it completes part of the goodness of that good news, that sharing the comfort increases the comfort. Think about it on a smaller scale. If you go to a great concert, what do you tell everyone the next day? Oh, you should have been there. You should have heard this. You're listening to some good music. You pull the ear pod, the earbuds out, wipe off the wax, and say, listen, it's amazing. Um, last night, uh, Don and I and, and the kids, we had the joy of, of joining one of the home groups. We were at Mark and Carrie Adams' house. And uh, Mark grilled chicken. And people were kind of talking once the food was getting passed around. They said, have you tried a chicken? Did you get the chicken? Turns out his brother is a chef who custom-made this marinade, this like stuff that was on it that he mixed with some stuff, and we're going over to Mark, hey, how'd you make this? Where'd you get it? And then telling each other about it. Why? I mean, it tasted fine without talking about it, but there was something about telling each other about it that made it better and wanting to know more about it. We're sharing that good news. And even on the drive home from the party, we're driving down the parkway and the sun was setting, and we could look out over College Creek, James on the right, College Creek on the left, and the sky was just this purple and pink glory. And all of us in the van are going, look at that. Look. An act of saying, look at this, increases my joy of the sunset, my joy of the chicken. Mark's over there, talked to him about the recipe. Sharing the joy increases the joy. Sharing the comfort increases the comfort. After all, what are we crying out God is here. He is coming with strength in his arm. He saves. He's with us. He's in control. He's a gentle shepherd. He's bringing salvation and hope and life. Second thing that we're uncomfortable with is being dust. The passage here calls the nation's drops in a bucket, grasshoppers, withering grass and dust. Look at verse 15. Behold. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. The United States of America, Isaiah says, is a drop in the bucket. And they are accountable, accounted uh, as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness i'm really uncomfortable with that notion see so, and you probably are too like you're, you may be thinking like i came to church to kind of feel built up and encouraged and to feel like i can do it and then isaiah's saying accounted as nothing as not not nothing as less than nothing? What's less than nothing? How do we even do that? How on earth is that comforting? To be a drop in the bucket, to be some dust on the scales. It's uh, 2017, so 500 years ago in church history, we're—you know—a lot of people will probably celebrate come October the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. You've probably heard of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, pronouncements against false teaching and false practices in the church, and lots of good things came from it. Some bad things, but mostly good things, I would say. Return to scripture, return to grace, really sweet time. You've probably heard of Martin Luther. Um, you, Most of you have probably not heard of Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon was Luther's right-hand man, and he was sort of the systematician of the two. He wrote a lot of systematic theology. He helped kind of put things in writing in a more thorough way and helped implement those things. A lot of people would say that the Reformation wouldn't have happened without Melanchthon. We remember Luther, but Melanchthon had a huge role to play in launching the whole movement. And I really like Philip Melanchthon because he was a really anxious man. Uh, Over at uh, William and Mary... Well, have you guys seen the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Remember Cameron, Ferris Bueller's best friend, this guy that's wound really, really tight? Uh, Over at the college, they're building this brand new wellness center that's for like the counseling department will be housed there. There's going to be other places and tools to deal with sort of the holistic wellness of students, uh, including psychological and mental health wellness. Um, What's interesting about that building is it's going to be designed after a scene from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The whole architectural scheme is based on Cameron because the, when the architect came to interview and get a bid for the job, he was hanging out with students and talking to them and he said, these kids remind me of Cameron <laughs> from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and this little walkway through the woods reminds me of Cameron's dad's backyard when Cameron drove the f- Ferrari through the glass window and into the woods, and so the building, actually if you look at the picture side by side of what, what's going to be built, it looks like Cameron's dad's glass house pretty fascinating. And Philip Melanchthon would fit right in with that, with people I love and meet. And uh, he was uptight and anxious and concerned and had a lot on his shoulders. Like this is the Protestant Reformation, right? Big deal of things that were happening. And people were even dying as the result of believing the things that he was writing about. And he was worked up. And supposedly the one thing that could calm him down is when his friend Martin would come, and at his desk he put his hand on his shoulder and say, let Philip cease to rule the world. Let Philip cease to rule the world. There is comfort in being dust. There is comfort in being small. Don and I have been watching The Crown on Netflix, the story about Queen Elizabeth in her early years her ascendance to power. And there's this amazing scene in The Crown where Queen Elizabeth is sitting down with the Queen Mother, Mary, getting her advice because she's being pressured to try to push Oliver Cromwell out. Um, And um, Winston Churchill, (laughs) Oliver Cromwell. Wrong wrong century. Um, And she's she's being pressured to push Winston Churchill out. And and the Queen, Queen Mary tells her, just stay out of it. It's not your job. And Elizabeth replies, so my job is to do nothing? And Queen Mary says, to do nothing is the hardest job of all. Sometimes to do nothing is the hardest job of all. We are anxious people, and much of our anxiety comes from wanting to rule the world. But for the prophet to say, you are like dust, your nation is a drop in the bucket. It's a good thing that God rules the world and not Philip or Elizabeth or Ben Robertson or you. Let yourself cease from ruling the world. But he goes on and he says, behold, your God who measures the oceans in the palm of his hand. This picture of God scooping up the Pacific and saying it's, weighing it out, yeah, it's about yea much, this is what it is, a God who watches nations rise and fall, and he both cares deeply and yet accounts them, as the scripture says, as less than nothing, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever, it endures, not just as something etched in stone, but that word stands in comparison to flowers and grass, it's this idea of a tree that continually flourishes, It's both permanent and continually life-giving. It stands forever. We are uncomfortable being small, but there is great comfort in it. And last of all, we're uncomfortable waiting. We're uncomfortable waiting. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? and not faint. Tom Petty said the waiting is the hardest part. He's probably right. We don't like to wait for anything. This has probably always been a human problem, not wanting to wait. But I would imagine it's a little bit worse now, thanks to Amazon Prime. Right? You can click it. In two days, it'll be there for free. Pay a little more. Tomorrow, it's there. And up in Richmond, they have Amazon, is it instant or now or something? We can get it within two hours. It's crazy. We don't like to wait. You can click on the Netflix. If they don't have it on Netflix, I can, you know, buy it off the other thing. You can rent it, and it's instantly there. And What do we do when the little thing starts spinning for, like, 30 seconds? <laughs> Come on. What's taking so long? Why is this taking so long? When your GPS is relocating for 30 seconds? go into space and back but you're frustrated because you have to wait I avoid stoplights on any route my children tease me I'll even try to avoid a route with stop signs on it because when I take them to school each morning I have to stop we pass right through Colonial Williamsburg to get to Matthew Whaley there's a stop sign and there's always a tourist walking in front of the car and I'm losing it and they're like dad come on just just wait honor your father I'm in, a, I'm in a hurry. I don't like to wait. Waiting is hard. They that wait upon the Lord. I need comfort, and you're telling me to wait. You're telling me I'm dust. You're telling me to have uncomfortable conversations. And now you're telling me to wait? My sister in law, Joy, Dawn's sister, uh, waited longer than the, the average age to get married. And then she and her husband uh, have had to wait to have a child. And we were reaching the point where we thought maybe it wouldn't happen. Been praying for them, praying with them for it. Um, by God's grace, they she's expecting now, and they're expecting their first child this summer. Um, but Brian, we call him Spot, because that's his nickname, he has a birthmark on the side of his it. head, like a white, white patch of hair, so he's been called Spot for years. But Spot was saying, you know, this anticipation of being an expectant father, the baby coming this summer and just feeling that not, I'm not ready, you know, and the anxiety of waiting. And he said, you know, a friend of mine told me that every expecting father just needs to go to therapy. <laughs> just go. And he's like, you think that? And I was like, yeah, it's actually sounds probably. I wish I had done that. Yeah, it's a good idea. Um, but the waiting and that God was with them in that waiting. And he doesn't promise that you'll get married. He doesn't promise that you'll have healthy kids. And he doesn't promise success and so on and so forth. But he does promise that as we wait on him, he will come with deliverance in the end. And that there is great comfort in waiting. That we stumble and fall and we are exhausted. All of us fall down weary. But he's saying, no, wait. Wait. The Lord is coming. Wait on him. And his strength will become your strength. He does not grow tired or weary. He does not faint, but as you wait on him, he gives you his strength through faith. John Patton was a Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides, these islands in the South Pacific. And uh, he was bringing the gospel there for the first time, and he was trying to translate the gospels into their language. And as he discovered, uh, through learning the language and working on this translation of the gospel of John, He found that they didn't have a word for belief or trust, especially the way it's used in the Bible. Can you imagine trying to translate John without a word for belief? What do you do? He's racking his brain, and he's been working on it for a while. He's doing all the translation he can do, and one day he's in his office, and he's brainstorming. He's leaning back on his chair, just on the back two legs, just kind of doing that balancing thing, just trying to think. And one of the villagers came into his office, uh, to see him, and then he, he said, Wait, stop. What's the word for what I'm doing right now? As he's leaning, and by the way, children, don't do that. Don't lean in the back of your chair. Bad things can happen. But he's, he's tilting back on those back to things. And the, the guy gave him a word that basically meant to put all of your weight on a thing. And that's the word he used to translate faith in the Gospel of John to put all your weight on the thing. To lean your whole weight upon, that as we wait upon the Lord, we are resting all of ourselves on him and trusting him to deliver. Um, I have a friend, his name is Brent, he's um, Brent Corbin, he's the campus minister with RUF at the University of Tulsa. And a couple of years ago, we have this uh, conference that we go to in the beach, Uh, we're going next week down to it, down in Florida. And he had found out that his wife desperately wanted to go see a Taylor Swift concert someday. I'm going to go see Taylor Swift. And uh, he found out that there was going to be a concert right after Summer Conference in Baton Rouge, their hometown. And it's right on the way back from Summer Conference. So he looked online, and the tickets were really expensive. And so he sent an email to family and friends in Baton Rouge and said, you know, What's, what's the inside scoop? Are there a way to get tickets? You know, how do, how do I do this? And he got a text message from his brother-in-law that just said this, don't buy tickets, don't buy tickets. And so Brent had a dilemma. He said, you know, do I buy the tickets? Do I hedge my bets and say, like, I don't want to disappoint my wife and know that I could have taken her to this concert and then pay, but he decided, to wait upon his brother-in-law to not buy the tickets. And the reason he was able to make that step of faith, to lean all of his weight on his brother-in-law, is that he knew that his brother-in-law was a spinal surgeon. It was probably going to be capable of buying better seats than Brent could get. And, of course, he delivered. He knew, okay, my bro- I know my brother-in-law. I know what he's like. I know he's honest. I know he's not pulling a trick on me. And I know he's capable. I know he has the power to do it for me. And so I will wait, and I will trust. He's got this. And God is telling us in this passage, I've got this. We so quickly want to go buy our own tickets. And all through the scriptures, in the prophet Isaiah, he's saying, I can handle this. Wait for me. Don't buy the tickets. But then go to the concert and tell others about it. He comes with his reward, it says in verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That language of he comes with his reward, we read that and think he's bringing us a reward. But in the language, it's it's the reward that the king himself has earned. And then he tells us in the next verse what that is. His lambs. His flock that he will gather into his arms. He has won his his prize and his prize is us, his flock. Comfort, comfort, oh my people. If you are weary and tired, he offers you comfort. The comfort of telling that good news and sharing that comfort with the world. And let Philip cease to rule the world. We are small and not in control, but rather behold your God. Don't buy the tickets yourself, but wait upon the Lord, and he will renew your strength. You will mount up on wings like eagles. You will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not faint. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are good, that you are kind, that you have provided for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to rely on you, that you would give us faith, that you would give us grace to persevere in the midst of suffering and hardship, that we would not faint and grow weary, but that we would trust and lean upon you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.